Ow. Hi. Hey, what's up? What up? You know, not much. Chilling, chilling. Yeah. What's up with you? You know, same old, same old. Same old, same old. Got a cat that's trying to kill a fly. Got a cat that's trying to kill a fly. Got another cat who's being liquid. That is, uh, that's, that is how it is. Yes, that's just now how it is. <laughs> For true. Uh, hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Seasonal <laughs> Checkup OVA. It's a podcast where we have conversations about video games, anime, and manga. Hello, I'm Jared, joined as always by Doc Allen, Ladium. Hello. Wow, you can actually hear that this time. It's amazing. Amazing. Amazing meatball. Amazing meatball. Yes, uh, hello, we're going to talk about a anime film this week. Continuing our trend of watching films that are based off of old stories. Old fairy tales. Old, yeah, that, that's the word I should use. Yeah, fairy tales. Popular yeah. fairy tales. Popular fairy tales. Yes. Uh, we're talking about Belle this week. Uh-huh. Which is also inspired by the beauty and the beast. Very obviously so. Very obviously so. Yep. <laughs> Um. Hey, you got to write about this once. I did. We'll get into that in a little bit, but yeah. Okay. I did write about this before. But yeah, this is a film that came out last year in Japan. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival a day before it was premiered in Japan and then came out over in the United States on January 14th of this year and in the UK on February 4th. It is now also out on home video. Whoa. On VHS. <laughs> yep. Definitely VHS. I mean, it is... On Laserdisc. Heavily inspired by by Beauty and the Beast, which would have yeah, been out on VHS. Yeah, one of those, like, bubble cases with it. Yeah, the, the, the um, clamshell case things. Yes. Yeah, those were great. I have, like, Going all of those at my mom's. the Disney vault. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, it was the third gross, highest grossing film, Japanese film of 2021, with 6.53 billion yen in the box office. As of December of 2021, uh, it earned 1.6 million in its U.S. opening week, and a total of 1.8 million over the four-day Martin Luther King Day holiday frame. So that's a pretty decent opening. Yeah, especially for a film that's like, well, for like a better word, like Japanese. Yeah, it only was in like 1,300 theaters. Oh wow! So, pretty good. Also, I mean, this was still during COVID. Yeah. Which is still a thing, so... I was like, COVID is not over, but... Yes. Um, got nominated for a bunch of awards. It won Outstanding Achievement in Music at the Japanese Academy Film Prize this past March. It also won Excellence Award Animated Theatrical Film Category at the VFX Japan Awards, also in March. And was nominated for a bunch of other places that didn't win. For shame. Heck. Heckity heck. Uh, it has a 95% on the Rotten Tomatoes. Which is pretty good. Yeah, wow. Critic like it. Let's talk about production for a little bit, because there's not a whole lot on the Wikipedia about it, but we can talk about it. Okay. Uh, while Studio Chizu worked on the project, they had help from veteran Disney animator and character design Jim Kim and Michael Camacho on the design of Bell and Studio Cartoon Saloon for the background work of The World of You. It shows. Yes. Uh, Mamoru Hosoda, who is the director, initially intended for Bell to be a musical, but considered the idea difficult due to Japan not having a culture of making musicals. However, he still wanted music to be essential to the, central to the film, so he searched for a protagonist that could sing. He said that he preferred the same person doing both speaking and singing voices to make it convincing and searched for a singer who could express the, their feelings through song and move people, even if they don't understand Japanese. He then found Kaho Nakamura, who's the voice actress for Suzu and Belle, whom he considered relatively unknown, but a perfect choice for the role. Hosoda stated that Nakamura was also involved in writing lyrics, so she could feel the lyrics she was singing. 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 And yeah, you mentioned that I wrote about this. Uh, I got to interview the composers of this film. Cool. Which is pretty cool. I interviewed uh, Taisei Iwasaki, Ludwig Forsell, and Yuta Bando about just like, you know, creating the music, working with Hosoda, working on a film during COVID. 
know what what all did they come into how did they come up with like the you know the music and everything what inspired them you know how did they take this inspiration of beauty and the beast and use that but also not just basically copy and paste it Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff like that um this interview is divided into like three separate sections with like two of them being for two specific people and then the other is kind of a group interview with all three of them um First up, I interviewed uh, Taisei Iwasaki, who was the director, composer, and producer of the music in the film. He talked about the the final song in the film, the, the climax song, A Million Miles Away, and basically how like he was able to take that song, considering it's, it's a nine-minute, nine-and-a-half-minute song. This is very long. Yeah. Um, he says he came up with the idea to divide the song into four parts, taking the fact into account that Suze's emotion, the emotions of the U audience around her, and the emotions of her friends in the real world all changed throughout the song. Each part had to have its own color, but also had to be integrated into one big song, so it was difficult to connect them seamlessly. He composed the last two parts of the hope that the climax of the song would not only would not would make not only everyone in the movie, but also the audience feel as if they are watching a live performance of Suzu Bell, and also seeing the like the la 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 parts in their hearts. And then compose part four with the intention of blessing everyone watching the movie. You know, bless, bless up, bless up. <laughs> uh, he also mentions that he, that he the song contains the hope that people who have been divided by COVID will feel like they can connect with each other in the world of you, which is an interesting point. Hmm. Um, I mentioned how I thought like the la la la's because you hear them throughout most of the film mm-hmm. as like a late motif, right? Um, and he mentioned that uh that the idea of doing the humming and using it in a different in, in another song was uh something that Hosoda came up with. He said he didn't think the humming was as a motif though, which is interesting. Mm. Um he said after he'd fully composed uh the song, he told uh Kaho Nakamura, "I want you to sing this song as if you're writing it for the first time, preferably while walking to your favorite riverbank." She's also a composer, so she immediately understood my intention and gave it a try. And he said he wanted to make a scene of the moment when the song was born. So that's how he used like the humming. And then he, he based, based the humming came out and like, they were able to make animation out of the humming essentially. Hmm. Uh, let's see what else. Da, 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 da. Uh, I also interviewed Ludwig Forzo, as I mentioned earlier, he did some of the other songs scattered throughout. Um, like he did the song that was based off of the dragon when like they're trying to like find the identity of that person there's like a song that plays throughout that when they're searching throughout the internet and i talked to him about his thought process about making more like a digital sounding piece of music for this scene in particular that's a little bit different from everything else in the film um he mentioned that he thought that he may have completely disregarded the original direction he got for the scene and that it was originally described to him as a briefing scene, meaning that he could have taken more of an espionage type of approach. However, instead, he started this piece with an idea in mind that he wanted the scene to feel like a montage, and he wanted a constant drive and for a simple idea of a melody to be present throughout linking all the past and characters of the scene together, or parts of the characters of the scene together. Uh, the scene itself deals with how the internet and media parts of our daily life that, in a sense, aren't real life depicts individuals and draws conclusions about the motives behind their actions and the repercussions of this type of clickbait style of almost predatory predatory make-believe that drives the online machine. His goal was to have the viewer get sucked into this wild goose chase and that the girls dive into as they search the internet for answers that they'll later find out aren't as simple as they might have thought. Uh, the sense and digital sounds used in this piece were the glue to connect Suzu and Hiro in their real world to the world of the web. an intriguing way to go about that for a song that's just about the internet kind of yeah um also there's the song that plays when they like when people find out about suzu and uh what's his face shinobu and like they the girls all freak out and she has to like fend them off and there's like that board game thing oh right and there's a, another like piece of music in that that kind of feels very different from the rest of the the soundtrack as well um and he mentions that uh, through the scene, in a way, deals with social media bullying and tackles it in a very, I guess you could say, literal way, which is why Social Warfare, the title of the song, was most definitely different in many ways. Uh, he actually had something completely different in mind and had tried out a few things when he got the first round of the picture for the scene, and then quickly realized that Hosada-san had in mind what he had said he wanted something that compl- sounded like a mobile game. 
at one point he was unsure whether we'd be recording uh orchestra for this track because Hosoda-san was so in love with the idea of it sounding somewhat cheap in the end it was <laughs> one of those pieces where the scene itself just called for something fun when I got to play around and be sort of silly and then he also says I even got to direct a distinguished choir of London voices to sing a few lines of easter egg lyrics in Japanese hmm. I also talked to him about the scene where Kay and Suzu first meet which you can obviously kind of get into spoilers here um but like it's when they meet first time through like the internet and there's obviously like they don't there's this distrust between the two of them like mm-hmm. he doesn't trust her yet and literally the, the song is called distrust so that makes it make sense right um, he mentioned that that was that that piece of music was potentially like the first bit of music he wrote for the movie and it was essentially in his wheelhouse closer to something he basically experienced doing before um, so for him, the ambient dark mood came rather naturally, and at the time of writing it, he honestly didn't overthink it too much. And then he says, however, it was only later when discussing the piece with Sotosan that I came to understand how important this non-musical approach was in depicting a scene d- dealing with such a serious subject as domestic violence and the state of, a mi- state of mind of a child who's been let down by people he thought he could trust over and over again. I think that what I felt necessary for the scene was for it not to be a conversation, because it never is. Suzu reaches out to Kay, but at this point, he has no reason to even listen to her, let alone trust her. The music is supposed to convey the anger, feelings of betrayal, and the turmoil inside of Kay. It's not telling a sweeping story, it's just giving you the picture. Um, ba 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 ba. Uh, and then also, I talked to him about, like, the, the final song that plays before the credits. Um which supports, I think, two different scenes. I forget which exactly two different scenes I'm talking about here, but... <laughs> um, he mentions that uh, the two parts of Skies of Song, which is the song we're talking about, were actually written completely separate with the first part actually only being added during the film's final mix. Though it does start right after the final conflict of the film, the idea is that we have already landed safely, and so the fi- first part lets us build on this newly found confidence and feelings of happiness belonging into the natural conclusion of Suzu's personal and emotional development. Uh, Hosoda-san's film all end with a shot of a cum, cum lum, uh, a cloud as <laughs> a symbol of personal growth, and for me it was one of the most rewarding parts of the film to be able to work on. To have the film's title screen with the late motif from Gales of Song and end with it fully grown up really encompasses the growth that Suzu goes through throughout the story of the film. In a way, this motif signals both how Suzu is able to recognize or realize her own potential as Belle, but also she has always had that strength within herself, that her alter ego isn't a mask to hide behind, but rather the cocoon that lets her blossom on her own. This track is supposed to symbolize the warm feeling of relief and peace of mind at the end of a journey where we have ended up better versions of ourselves. Um, and then this is the group portion of the the interview. Uh, one of the things, obviously, I wanted to talk about was, like, you know, they made this film during COVID, specifically, like, you know, the obviously the, the harder parts of the pandemic were definitely occurring during this time. Right. Um Ibasaki had to say that it was difficult to meet many people directly through COVID-19, and this time I was in the position of organizing several composers, so I felt a little, a lot of pressure at first. But since the four composers who participated this time, Ludwig Forso, Yuta Bando, Daiki Suneta, and Miho Hazama, were originally friends, I was able to make many contacts with them. The actual collaboration was not so difficult. Another important factor was that they were able to have quality online meetings due to the development of technology. In fact, it was COVID-19 that gave me the idea to gather more than 3,000 la-la-las from over, all over the world for a million miles away. I think this was a good thing for the project. Uh, Forcell said, We've all had our lives turned upside down by the pandemic. I know many friends who have had to rethink their entire approach to writing music and recording it over the last two years. However, my personal experience wasn't only negative. Actually, thanks to the changed condition, I was able to finally set up a new place to work out of my home, and as I left my previous employer halfway through working on Bell, this really helped me a lot. <laughs> Uh, and then Bando said, in terms of COVID, this was my first experience with meetings being held online, of course. Or, of course, I think the film was doing the same. Also, when recording the orchestra parts, portions with its ensemble, ensemble Fove, or Fove, F-O-V-E, it was a new experience as we had to take measures against COVID that I had never experienced before. In terms of the compositions, it was my first time, it was my first opportunity working with Taisei Iwasaki Iwas- 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 and Ludwig Forstel, so I faced the challenge of having to demonstrate my artistry while also collaborating musically. As a result, I think that each of us were able to make music in a good way. And then I asked him about, obviously, the homages to Beauty and the Beast, because um, that's obviously a big thing without, throughout the story. Um, Iwasaki said, uh, what I was most conscious about was not com- about was composing music that was truly necessary for the film. I thought that the music was truly good and not influenced by the times, it would naturally become sustainable music. As for Beauty and the Beast, I tried to be as unaware of it as possible and never mention the live-action film, the animation, or the original story. They're all wonderful, so I did not want to be too influenced by them musically. 
uh, Forcell said, if anything, I find it, find it better to be to completely disregard any previous renditions, especially of something like Beauty and the Beast. People tend to forget that the Disney film isn't the first or only version of the story, so I'd like to think of the parts that reference that classic fairy tale as our version of it. And then Bando said, in terms of the music, I was not trying to give too much of an homage to Beauty and the Beast. Both Studio Chizu's animation and director Hosoda himself created a very delicate and spectacular story that I was able to add music, music to naturally. Hmm, that's uh, interesting that they were all like, no, we, we were ignoring Beauty and the Beast, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of probably what you'd have to do. No, it makes sense, because otherwise you would like subconsciously be throwing stuff in from the the other versions, and that's not what you're trying to do. You're trying to make mm-hmm. your own version. Yeah. Um, I asked them about how like there's parts of the music, specifically how it's integrated into the film itself. There's a lot of like subtlety to it. Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of just like soft pieces that play in the background that like you may not notice unless you're like really trying to hear for it, and essentially it was like, is this was this like a you know a creative decision that they implemented or was it just like something that kind of occurred? Um, Iwasaki said that the score for this film was composed by several people, and I think they all understood the story well and composed songs that fit the scenes. A score should not be a good piece of music on its own. The most important thing for the film is that it works well in the scene. So we had a lot of discussions about what we were composing. Uh, Forcell said, as someone who definitely wrote a few of the less flamboyant parts of the score, I say that with some point, something dynamic and colorful as a film like Bell, you definitely need the quieter bits so that the bigger parts get to stand out more. It's easy to overdo it when you're trying to convey so many things, and you are, and you also have songs being performed throughout, so while giving room for the extravagant parts while tying everything together, I think this was the right decision for this film. And then Bando said, as far as I can remember, the word subtlety was not exactly an order from director Hosoda. Perhaps it was an inevitable consequence of the animation as far as this film is concerned. While we had, while we had very detailed, while we had very detail on, on the score, I think the music was certainly born out of a response to the performances in the film. And then one of the things also, I, I like the last things I talked about to them was, um, the idea, you know, virtual singers being the thing. Was it more, did they try and like look at you know the current state of like pop music and use that for Bell, or was it just like let's try and make something else entirely? Let's make it more the symphonic thing that we see throughout most of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, Iwasaki said, "Of course, some of the songs were composed with the current pop music in mind, but overall, I was more conscious of the fact that I wanted to compose songs that would not be affected by the times and that would last for a long time." And then Forcell said, "I have hours and hours of text messages between my, me and Iwasaki-san discussing the approach of the songs of Bell from the months leading up to actually writing anything for the film. We talked about basically any and all films that we could think of that feature actual pop artists in their music. If anything, I don't think we even discussed typical musicals at all beyond confirming that that was not what Bell should be. I will say that this is a very fine line to walk. Pop music doesn't become popular only because of how it sounds. There are so many unquantifiable aspects such as the artist, social trends, mere chance, etc. And as for the musical approach, the music still needs to be needs to represent the film in a, in a story, so we needed to land somewhere in between. Somewhere where we'd have songs that were strong enough to stand on their own as pop songs, while also being part of telling an overarching story. We also tried our best to make the music feel modern while not leaning into any specific current trends so that we'd have something that would not only age well, but also be more accessible to an international audience. So there you go. There you go. Composer talk. Um, I also just want to mention on like a side note, um, mm-hmm. as someone who um, did did not do any interviewing or whatever, um, and on a different note with the music, actually, um, you just shared with me before this the um, Japanese version of some of the songs. Correct. Um, since we watched the English dub. Mm-hmm. And they did a good job matching up, like how the voices are going to sound. They really did. Um, so, like for full disclosure, I did not have access to the English sub when I got the screener version of the film to, for to prep for the interview and everything. I only had the Japanese dub, so obviously I couldn't ask anything about the English dub or like you know how they tried to match things and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But so like when we watched the film together, that was the first time I had actually seen the English dub in action. And yeah, like you said, it, they do a, just an incredible job of making it just sound very similar for both versions. I'd, like, there's really nothing like. I mean, there's probably obviously differences here and there because, like, you know, you're changing the wording and everything to to a different language and all that sort of stuff. But like, in terms of just like, you know, how it sounds, it's very, very similar in a way that you almost would not expect when you know going from language to language and different person to different person doing these songs it's very very hard to do because 
it sounds like the same person just singing in a different language at points, but that's mm-hmm. definitely not what it is. It's no. com- two completely different people, which is impressive. Yeah. That's really, really impressive. Very much so. Um, which I guess that leads into one thing is that they did do an English dub of all the songs too. Yes. I don't know if we mentioned that, but. Which again is like, you know, more work than you would maybe necessarily expect. Mm-hmm. Because usually it would just be a thing of like, oh, we're just going to keep the songs in Japanese, make it a little bit easier, all that sort of stuff. But they went the full mile here and we're like, no, we're going to do both versions of everything. And I guess that goes with the whole like they were thinking about like how to make it as accessible as possible to people like. Right. That would be part of it. Mm -hmm. I was just really impressed to hear like how similar they sound. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. Um, as you are aware, um, you know, my, my brother has more of the like musical part of the, the McDivitt existence, I guess, right. uh, of the duo of us. Um, but I know more about like vocal stuff than he does. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe, I don't know. I, I did vocal stuff way more than he did. Right. Um, so I tend to like gravitate towards listening to those like first. And so like that, that was why it stuck out to me when you sent me that just now. I was like, holy crap. Like that is, that is good. Mm-hmm. Well done. Anyway. But yeah, uh, I guess we can now talk about the film itself. It's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. With computers. It's interesting because, like, obviously, you know, we've heard all this talk about things like the metaverse and all that sort of stuff recently. And, yeah. like, a lot of this film kind of takes place in a, you know, a version of that. Yep. But, like, it's obviously something that's more realized than what, you know, is happening in our reality yes. of sorts. But, like, it's essentially just that where you just, you go, it's the classic, you know, technology thing of like you go to a different world you become a different persona and you know you use that to better yourself in real life kind of story um in this in this case you become like a literal disney princess because she looks just like a disney princess from like 80s 90s era mm -hmm. it's crazy but i mean like it, it it tracks why because they're like hello former disney people would you like to design a princess and they're like Hello, yes, we would like to design a princess. Here, here is a princess. Thank Yay. you. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Yeah. Um It's interesting. Like it's also like if you look at it through the lens of like the growth of like VTubers and stuff like that, it's kind of just like yeah. another extension of, of that sort of thing. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. So like I I'd have to imagine like something like that had to have been like a consideration of like well this is the thing that's blowing up currently while we're making this film like you know we can kind of integrate this in a way that makes sense but it's also its own different thing than what you know this is happening over here. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I mean they basically do mention like or call them like virtual singers, which essentially is a term that's you know used commonly nowadays right so the similarities are certainly there but yeah um we have our protagonist suzu who's just like a a kid a regular girl regular old gal who's still dealing with the trauma of her mama dying she died she died and basically it's kind of like alienates herself from everyone except for like a few people and just is like normal but also just like very shy and quiet mm-hmm. um eventually she gets like an invitation to you which is like the big metaverse type type world where you can basically become anything you want to be live out this life in this very fancy virtual world and just do kind of whatever you want and she creates this avatar and becomes Belle, who, as soon as she gets in, she just starts singing, and everyone's like, oh, okay, cool. But, like, she's she's able to sing, like, actually, because 
in her real life she's unable to do that because like anytime she tries she basically just gets like super anxiety attacks and panic attacks because i mean go ahead no you go ahead sorry i was gonna say to be fair at one point like ten thousand microphones are shoved in her face at a karaoke bar and it's like yeah you only need one (laughs) you only need one of those microphones but Mm -hmm. also like jesus christ (laughs) too many microphones It's like she's the freaking president or something. Like, Mr. President, please give us some some karaoke. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Moving on. But yeah, she's able to, like, actually sing here. Because, like, she doesn't have the pressure of, like, being herself. She can kind of just do whatever she wants. And then people start lashing onto her songs after, like, one of them goes viral. And she starts getting, like, a butt ton of followers and she's like i don't know what to do with this ah um side note because i don't think we mentioned it um she picks bell b-e-l-l because that's what suzu means oh god don't you do what yet okay okay um so suzu is bell b-e-l-l right um, which is where her name came from. Anyway. And then eventually, like, once she starts getting popular, people are just like, what if we just start spelling it B-E-L-L-E? Mm-hmm. Because that means beautiful in mm-hmm. French. Beautiful eyes. Beautiful eyes. <laughs> so, yeah, her name just gets changed, and she's just like, I guess I don't have anything. I can't do anything about mm-hmm. this. All right, I guess I'm Belle then. Belle. Belle. Hey. Hey. Um, so yeah, she starts getting more popular and popular. She starts doing like concerts and you and everything. And then she's doing this one concert in this like dome and this dude comes in who's the dragon and he makes a menace of the concert. Everyone's real mad because they all hate him because he's a dirty fighter. He just comes in punching people. (laughs) Yeah. This vigilante group comes in. They're like, we're going to take you down and expose who you are. And Sue's just like, huh? They're led by what? a man named Justin. 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 Mental, physical Justin. What? That's a, that's a VTuber reference. Oh, for all my VTuber fans out there. Nahone. Um. But yeah, she starts getting like more intrigued. Like, okay, who is this guy? Why is he like so villainized in you and everything? Like, what's happening? Um. So her and her friend Hiro try and like find out who this guy is. They learn that like kids like him, but like everyone else just hates him. Mm-hmm. And they start finding like these different people who they think could be like this tattoo artist who's tattooing himself with bruises on him. And they're like, well, maybe it's him. But then he's like, nah, he's just a weird artist guy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just the lady who lives a fake life online. It's not her people start thinking it's his baseball player because he doesn't show his skin and he's like no i just have a bunch of scars on my chest because i had a bunch of surgeries when i was a kid anyways <laughs> i love that he just like starts ripping off his sh- not ri- ripping it off he just starts taking off his shirt in the middle of this thing like i'm jacked i am super jacked also i had surgeries as a kid let me be an inspirational story to you now and i'm like okay oh that's a baseball oh that's a baseball um it was uh it, it was it was wild mm-hmm. um bell eventually goes and finds like the dragon's castle she tries to talk with him but he's just like don't go away it's a weird creepy little mermaid guys yeah the little ai's yeah but yeah this is where we really start getting like the the beauty and the beast symbolism and parallels and all that sort of stuff here sometimes just like straight up like this is a scene that looks almost exactly like 1991 beauty and the beast <laughs> yep yep <laughs> for sure i love that they even put her in like the like the writing cape type thing that bell has in in disney's beauty and the beast like that's how she runs around in the castle is with that cape on initially mm-hmm. it's like wow you guys are you're doing it yeah um, so like, that's they're they're trying to start getting closer to each other. She's trying to like break down that wall between them and everything. 
And then also she's dealing with the fact that like her friend Ruka is like, I like someone. Can you help me? And she thinks it's the the dude that she likes, and she's like real bummed about it. She's like, oh no, oh no. Because she's a very popular saxophonist. Yeah, she's like she's the popular girl. She's pop, but she's also like she she's friends with Suzu, and like Suzu's like, I don't know why you're friends with me. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's oh, there's a weird little like angely floaty thing that hangs around too yes the he he meets bell like the first time she logs in and then like he's at the the dragon's castle and like helps her around to find him and all that sort of stuff um but this is also where we get the scene of like the girls all getting mad at suzu because they think she's stealing shinobu away from them all and she has to do damage control and be like no it's not true he's on we're not dating no nothing's happening it's okay don't worry about it and this is all because, like, he asked her if she was okay, like, in the hall at school. Grabbed her hand. And grabbed her hand. They're like, oh, scandalous. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Mm. Um, He's also, like, the most stoic character I think I've seen in a show in a long time. He plays basketball and then talks very little. <laughs> talks very, very little and very, like, monotone. Mm-hmm. It's very funny to me. Um. But she finally meets up with Ruka and she's like, no, it's not. It's not him. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's not that the guy. What? And it's the the weird like uh, kayak dude that she's friends with. And they're <laughs> they're both just gremlins to each other. Yep. When they finally confess, which is real good. It's real good. It's real good. He bas- he basically just becomes shaggy from Scooby-Doo at one point. Yeah. Um, and he keeps trying to like, run away and Suzu has to like, keep, like dragging him back. Like, no, get back here. What are you doing? <laughs> I love that, like, and th- there's one part earlier in the movie where, like, he jokes with Suzu, like, mm-hmm. oh, man, is that your way of, like, confessing to me? And she's like, no, what, do- what are you doing? Because he, he's like, oh, I'll go, I'm cheering for you because yeah. you made it to nationals. That's cool. He's like, oh, does that mean you like me? And he's like, just stares at me. He's like, okay, I'm going to take that sign. says no. Yeah, no, yeah, that's a no. But then, then he's he- like, oh, I was just kidding. I was kidding. Yeah. And then he pulls the same thing with Ruka. And then she just, like, gets all, like, shy and embarrassed and covers her face and he's like oh, wait is that true and so he's just like in front of in front of ruka just like nodding her head and he's just like i don't know what to do <laughs> all while wearing crocs this man yeah. got confessed to wearing crocs what a man what a man <laughs> he's, yeah, a, he's a gremlin eventually he's she's able to pull him back in there and they're like able to talk a little bit she's like i'll come watch you and she's like, what do you like? You're like, I like Belle. And like, oh, I do too. And then she's like, uh-oh, I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's where, like, Shinobu finds her. And he's like, hey, I got something to ask you. And she's like, oh, I got something to ask you too. Um, 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 um. And he's like, you're Belle, aren't you? And she's like, what? No, 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 no. And then is able to run away when there's, like, a rush of traffic on rush the street. Rush of traffic all And he's of a like, huh? What? what? Where'd you go? <laughs> Also, um, they never really clarify how, how he found out that she was Belle. Other than the fact that, like, he's known her since she was six. He probably knows the, knows the singing voice. That would be my guess. Yeah. And, like, the way she sings. So, like, that's how he probably would be able to understand and know. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, her... it was unclear when her mom died, but the, the singing would obviously sound different as she's, like, 17 and not six. Um... But my guess is that he's he's just close enough to her that he was able to like piece it together and and he does know her voice right. So he would have a better understanding than anyone essentially that yeah. didn't know. Um, but things then you go kind of haywire when the vigilante squad basically are out to find the dragon's castle and everything. Then they do like the the recreation of the beauty and the beast scene, like the dance scene and all that sort of stuff where she sings the song for him. Yep. All that sort of stuff. She gets captured. Yo, hold on. Back it up. We got to talk about those weird shoes. Talk about the shoes, please. They're horrifying. (laughs) Those are the most terrifying shoes I think I've ever seen in my entire life because he's got like, you know, beastie legs. But... Like the shoes are formed up 
on the beastie leg. I'm like, oh God, no, 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 no. Just let him go barefoot. This is creepy. This is terrifying. Why are you doing this? And like the whole time they were doing the whole dancing scene, I was like, this is supposed to be pretty, but those shoes. What are those? What are those? Like it's so upsetting. Um, but they do get little nice roses. So that's fun. Yeah. Um, also just something that I feel like should be mentioned. Like, of course a man named Justin is a villain. Like <laughs> that just that just seems completely yes. Have you ever met a good Justin? Yes. What? I okay. Okay. I guess I should refrain from saying anything because I'm related to a Justin, but <laughs> most Justins are terrible. And it just seems like I'm a basic white guy. Let's go. Woo. Um, which I guess like he's voiced by Chance Crawford or Chase Crawford. So I guess he is kind of a basic white guy. But anyway, continue on. <laughs> but yeah, uh, eventually Justin captures Belle and like it tries to interrogate her. Like, are you? I know you're close to the dragon. Where is he? What is he doing? She's like, I'm not telling you anything. And he's even like, I'll show your identity to the world if you don't tell me anything. And he's like trying to do that, then the AIs come in and are like, hey, blah, 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 and Aero would make her escape, but she drops like a petal of the flower, which allows them to find the, the castle and everything. And That's they cold. burn it to the ground. They burn it to the ground. Which is very rude and mean. There was a big like octopus squid thingy hanging on the castle. It's like, well, mm. that's cooked now. And burnt to a crisp. Yeah, well, the, they, they overcooked it. That's kind of sad. Uh, she tries to find the dragon again and like help him out, but he's like, "I'm out of here. See you later," <laughs> and flees. And then they basically have to try and find his identity again um, before he gets caught and unveiled. Uh, they find a video feed of this kid singing a song, which is the song that Belle sang for the dragon. Which is like the only two would know that. So she's like, "How does this kid know that?" And then she realizes that this kid is, like, the little angel avatar. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, like, his brother shows up. And she's like, okay, this is the dragon then. Um, but they also, like, find out, like, they're being abused by their dad. Which is what I figured when the, the bruises were a whole thing. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So someone get beaten on. Um, I was going to ask you something. What was I going to ask you? What were you going to ask me? I don't know. In one in one ear, out the other. Gone forever. Butts. Butts, indeed. But yeah, they, they find them, and they basically kind of understand that that's probably who it is. They try and, like, video connect with them, and, like, she tries to tell them who she is, but, like, they're like, no, I don't... Kay's, Kay, the, the kid who's the dragon, basically is like, I don't believe you're this person. I don't have any reason to trust you. I've heard this song and dance time and time and time and time and time and time again. Like, why should I care? Why should I believe what you're telling me? And then disconnects from them. And then she goes into like you after everyone else is just like, Hey, you need to go sing. You need to find a way to help them. You need to do this. And like all like, yeah, we kind of know who you are as well, by the way, BT dubs. <laughs> <laughs> she goes into to you. She's going to sing. And then she also unveils herself. Cause she like grabs Justin's thing. He's like, you're going to unveil me. Do it. And he's like, what? No, I'm not going to do this. No, 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 no. <laughs> and then she shows who she really is, starts singing, and basically enraptures the entire world of you and is able to show, like, hey, this is who I actually am. You can trust me and everything. Poor Justin loses all his sponsors. Rip. The smug whale comes back. The smug whale! My favorite. I love the smug whale. Peggy yeah. Sue is like, oh man, you're a regular girl just like me. I'm going to cheer like for me. you now instead of being a butthead to you. Yay. Yay. So they're able to do all that and then they contact uh, the kids again and Kay's like about to tell them like where they live and everything. But then the dad finds like the video of getting him abusing the kids and like runs in and just rips the internet out before he can, before the address can be told. And then they basically find out like, or use like sound cues and just like of, of still frame from the windowsill or like okay this these songs are playing like your little like chimes that play in Japanese towns all right this is we, we've kind of like narrowed down the search to this 
And then Kamashin's like, oh, I I was there just recently. I know where exactly where this is. I know those buildings. <laughs> Look at this picture. Look at this, Look at this photograph. <laughs> Look at this photograph. And they're like, okay, well, now we have a neighborhood down. So, like, one of the old ladies or the middle-aged ladies is trying to call the cops and be like, hey, can you do a welfare check on these people? And the cops are like, nope, can't. 48 hours. You need that much time for us to do this. And they're like, what do you mean 48 hours? Do your job. That seems like a terrible policy, by the way. Oh, 100%. But like, people could die cops. in 48 hours. The cops are doing nothing. Shocker. The cops are doing what cops do. So Suzu's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so, like, they just put her on a train and in a bus and send her to Tokyo to find these kids. Which... I mentioned to you when we were watching, it's like, this seems like a terrible idea to send a teenage girl by herself into a situation where they know that active abuse is happening. Yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, this this is a bad plan. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the way, she's able to, like, actually reconnect with her dad and everything. Because, like, her and her dad have had this, like, real rocky relationship where she just does not want to open up to him or anything. Just doesn't really want anything to do with him. Not like it's a bad way. It's just like she just isn't really emotionally ready to deal with any of this and hasn't been for years since her mom died. And her dad just like keeps trying and trying and trying. Just like I think himself just understands like eventually she'll open up and I'll be ready to do that and everything. And she finally kind of does that and like talks to him about everything and is like I got to go find and help some people. And then I'll be back. And he's like, all right, I know you're going to do great. You've always been kind and everything. You've grown up to be this kind girl. Like, you're going to do great, and I believe in you and all that sort of stuff. Which is, like, real sweet, because they haven't really had, like, really any kind of, like, heart-to-heart talk, probably since, like, her mom died or anything like that. Yeah. Um, But she she eventually shows up there and is, like, running around in the rain to all these neighborhoods, and then she finds the, the little kid. And, and is like, hey, it's Belle. Hello, you're here. And then Kay shows up and is like, oh, you actually came. Interesting. And then the dad runs up and is like, where are you kids going? Who's this person? Get away from my children. You can't tell me how to raise my children. And then, like, rips part of her cheek open. Yep. This is grim and gruesome. Yeah, like, the way that he pulls on her face is like, oh, God. She basically, like, puts herself in front of the kids to protect them for, like, he's trying to, like, hit her. But, like, she's just standing in front of him, like, stone-faced with blood running down her cheek. And it's like, I'm not going to move. Hit me if you want, <laughs> and he basically just backs down because like he's this dad's basically now in a in a position where like his the power dynamic shifted where he doesn't have the power anymore so now he's basically a wimp yeah yep <laughs> you sound very agreeable in that sentence I mean it's obviously not gonna like super change things like obviously i think they would have to get those kids out of that situation like immediately oh yeah yeah yeah. like that's not gonna stop child abuse and as soon as she's gone that's probably right, going right, right. to be right um so but i think in this situation it was like you know the dad definitely has had this power dynamic over the kids and feels like he can just do whatever and like once someone actually comes in and is like no you're not doing this like it completely upsets his balance and makes him so like he can't do anything literally falls on his butt Falls on his butt. Yeah, she just bleeds. Real metal. Yeah, it's pretty metal. <laughs> um, Suzu and Kay thank each other for giving each other courage. And then she goes back home. And her dad's there to welcome her home. And That's cute. Yeah. She's actually, she finally wants to have dinner with him, which is real nice. Yay. And then they all, all like her friends and everyone walk on the beach together. And Shinobu's like, hey, I don't have to protect you anymore. We can actually have, like, a normal relationship. It's cool. Okay, so this bothered me. So I think, like, to me, I understood this as, like, he wasn't just like, oh, well, now I don't have to protect you. Whatever. I can live my life happily. I think for him, like, he always was trying to look out for her after her mom died and everything. Like, he was trying to do that to make sure she was okay. But by doing so, it caused, like, this rift in their in their relationship, in their friendship and everything. Where like he just kind of he basically had to be the protector the entire time, and she was just in this rut this whole time where she couldn't get out of it. So like they couldn't move forward with their relationship at all, or their friendship, or anything. So like they were just stuck in this way for years, 
And then now that she's able to kind of like get out of her shell and she's able to like have some confidence back in herself, she's able to come to terms with her mother's death and everything. He doesn't have to feel like he has to, you know, protect her at all times. They can, you know, push forward through their relationship. They can break some, break these walls down that have been kind of between them now and have something that's a little bit more normal or normalized essentially. Does that make sense? I mean, that's a much more generous way of interpreting it than than what I was giving him because right. I, I was very, very mad about this line. Like, yo, my dude. Yeah, it, it was I, just, for, I think for me, I just never saw it as like something that was like, well, now I had I don't have to do, have anything to do with you anymore type of thing. It was more treating her like a burden that bothered Right, yeah, me. yeah, yeah, yeah. That um, that bothered me a lot. Yeah, I understand that. Um, but I, I I don't think that's necessarily what they were going for. Yeah, like I don't think he's gonna abandon her after right. this. But like, just the way he said it, I was like, wow, okay, like glad she was an obligation to you and not like somebody you actually genuinely gave a about. Good job, buddy. Like, it's probably more the fact that, like, oh, now that we don't have this kind of relationship, we can actually have, like, a different kind of relationship, like, dating kind of relationship sort of thing. Yeah. It's just a weird way to put it. I think there's also, like, just some weird things in the English dub as particular. Mm. Like, you mentioned the friend, how, like, you thought she was just terrible the entire time, and, like... The first, like, the first couple of times I watched this, I didn't really get that vibe from her. Like, obviously, she was weird and, like, kind of, you know, trying to push Belle in this very specific way. But, like, in the English dub, she's a lot more just, like, what's the word for it? Like She's mean. Yeah, I guess that would be the way to describe it. Like, there definitely is, like, a different kind of vibe with that character in the English dub, I think. Like, she, she says some things that are, like, genuinely mean that's, like, to her real good friend i'm like whoa are you sure you guys are friends yikes because like i think in the japanese dub at least it felt like it was more tongue-in-cheek mm-hmm. whereas this it's more just like biting yeah hmm. so that was a thing a thing a thing <laughs> but yeah um that's how the movie ends essentially yeah I still don't remember what I was going to ask you earlier, but. One day you'll remember and you'll be like, oh, no, I remembered. Yeah, I'll probably remember like, I don't know, 10 years from now. I'll be like, hey, hey, Jared, I was going to tell you about this bell thing. You're like, what the heck are you even talking about? Who are you? (laughs) What? Are you saying we're not going to be friends? No, I'm kidding. Wow. I joke. It's joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. Oh, man. Oh, man. It's Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Essentially. Oh! I remember what I was going to say! Good job. You remembered. Um, Is it 10 years from now? <laughs> yes. Hello. Welcome to 2032. Oh, my God. That's horrifying. Um. Well, now this is going to come across as, like, something stupid because we've gone through the whole movie and it's fine it's fine um (laughs) i was just thinking of the the like weird thing where she like shoves his like weird dragon beast nose into her boobs (laughs) i was like why is this happening look he's a big boy and he's awkward to hug it's true and then like when you think about it he's like a kid yeah you're like, oh, well, I guess. And then when they hug in real life, he's like, oh, hey, this is actually you. Yeah, yeah. It's also brother... cute that he's shorter than her. And his brother's like, hello, I would also like hug. Hug? Hug? Hug a Shio? Yep. So anyway, sorry that, like I said, it was totally stupid, but. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, It was something that I brought up when we were watching it, and I, I remembered that I wanted to, to to bring that up again. Right. Yep. There you go. Yep. Boob hug. Boob hug. That's that's a good way to end a podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What are we? 
Yep, exactly. Yep. Exactly. But yeah, that's that's Belle. It's fun. Uh-huh. And it's like the third or fourth time I've watched it now and still enjoyed it, so. That's good. Yeah. It was interesting watching this again after having done all the work for it. I could, I was like picking up like, okay, this is where this song is. This is this song. I remember having to think about this song, <laughs> thinking about <laughs> how this relates to the film and everything. It was, it was a very interesting kind of watch going back to it again. That's cool. Yeah. But yeah. Did you know the novelist who wrote Beauty and the Beach had a husband who was a spy? Beauty and the Beach? Beauty and the Beach. <laughs> a spy? You know, I'll be like Mario and you can be Princess Beach. Oh, why would you do that? Why? <laughs> yeah. Her third husband was the French spy Thomas Pichon. What? That's pretty cool. Her name is also very long. What what was what was he a spy for? France. Well, <laughs> I assumed that, yes. We'll see, hang on. He was also known as Thomas Tyrell. He was a French Tyrell. government agent during Father Le Latre's war. He's renowned for betraying the French. Oh no. Providing information to the British, which led to the fall of Bougeot. He is also referred to as the Judas of, of Acadia. Okay, I see Nahone. He had he moved to London in nineteen or seventeen fifty seven and had an affair with the lady who wrote Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Wowza! This man's wild. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we need to look into this guy. There you go. Spies. No spies in this film, though. Not really. But uh, that's going to do it for this episode. <laughs> so if you'd like more from us, head on over to seasonalanimecheckup.com or scc.cool where you can find past episodes of this podcast and other podcasts like Jared and Now Watch. You can also find columns and reviews on the site as well. If you'd like more from Anladium, go to anladium.com. She's got columns and reviews. Mm -hmm. You can follow us on Twitter and TikTok at Anime Checkup. You can buy our books, One Shiny Moment of Critical Analysis of Love Life, Sunshine, and Hot Tubs and Pac-Man on Amazon.com. And you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash S-A-C-O-V-A. Buy us a slice of pizza, get access to unedited versions of the podcast early, and a wealth of bonus content as well. Next week, we aren't talking about an anime version of a fairy tale, because... The games, the video games are back. Yeah. We're going to talk a lot about a lot of the video game presentations that are happening around the not E3 week or month. I don't know how you describe it. Also, did you hear that next year E3's back? Why? I don't know. You're literally the only person clapping. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, we'll talk about uh, the Sony State of Play that happened last week, the Summer Games Fest thing, Xbox's thing, Capcom's thing, and then probably someone else and a couple other people are going to have some things. We'll talk about those. And hopefully we don't miss any because I will be real upset if we do. Yeah, same. So uh, we'll talk about all of that next week. Mm-hmm.